Well, I was quite ready for us to just keep singing some more. That was all such a blessing to our hearts. Join me in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. As we know, there are various metaphors used in the New Testament to uh, capture what the church is or to picture to us what the church is so we understand it more clearly. Imagery such as a building, the church is a, a building, a house that God's, God builds. We are that building. The church is a body. But I think my personal, personal favorite is just the presentation of the church as a family. We refer to ourselves that way many times around here. We're a family. It's our church family. And in this family, the church family, we are all brothers and sisters of one another. We are therefore a, a community that should be knit together by love in every way, seen in loving relationships, seen in loving affections for one another, seen in loving actions, of course. In our passage today, in First Thessalonians 2, the Apostle Paul provides the example of this kind of family love. <clears throat> and of course, it is a love that every Christian should exemplify. Therefore, this is a, an example that every Christian should follow. But even more important, by his example, the apostle sets the standard for all other pastors, all other ministers. Much of what he has said along the way in this letter, you already know, has been directed can be applied to church leaders such as this again today. No doubt we as elders here at Twin City need to regularly evaluate our own hearts concerning the pattern that's set before us in this passage, a pattern that depicts how we are to relate to the Lord's sheep. But let's review chapter 2 just for a bit to set this up. In the broad stroke way of doing that, in verses 1 through 12, Paul summarized the character of the ministry that was carried on there in Thessalonica by him and Silas and Timothy, that missionary team, that ministry there in Thessalonica, the character of that in verses 1 to 12. Then in verses 13 and 14, we spend some time examining how he reflected on the Thessalonians themselves and how they received that ministry, how they received the gospel. And that was a reception that brought such great uh, gratitude to the apostle's heart. That was followed by a digression that we looked at last week, a digression addressing Jewish opposition to the truth and the Jewish opposition to the gospel mission. That was verses 15 and 16. Opposition that caused great grief to Paul's heart. Well, now in verses 17 through 20, we find this further glimpse into the relationship between the missionaries and the Thessalonian believers. And in this glimpse, we can identify two desires that all genuine shepherds are to be known for which means as well two desires that ministers and shepherds should be continually seeking to grow in and seeking to cultivate in their hearts. 
First of all is this, number one, the desire to regularly fellowship with God's people. That seems fairly basic, but it's crucial. This desire to regularly fellowship, to be with God's people. Now, Paul and the other missionaries are wonderful examples of this. I mean, even though they had known, relatively speaking, they had known the Thessalonians for just a short amount of time, really, a few months as far as we can tell, and they had been forced out of Thessalonica, but they had been away from them only for a short while when this letter was written, what we're going to read. But even so, even though they had not known them for that long, and even though they had been separated from just a short while, they did not enjoy that separation at all. Why? Because they genuinely loved these people, and they longed to fellowship with them. Verse 17, but we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short while, in person, not in spirit, were all the more eager with great desire to see your face. Now, that opening adversative term, bud, is used to contrast uh, the missionaries here with the Jews he has just addressed, and the pronoun we is actually emphatic in this this sentence, so the use of the emphatic pronoun emphasizes that contrast as well. He's talked about the Jews. He says, but we, we're different than that, contrary to them, to those who did not even want the Thessalonians to hear about Christ. In contrast to them, Paul and his colleagues, we sincerely, they sincerely wanted to be with them. They wanted to spend time with them. They wanted to fellowship with them. So notice the affectionate address that he uses. He calls them brethren. Brethren, that's, I grew up, by the way, in the South. That was always brethren. Took me a long time to realize that's not even a word, brethren. But that's okay because in Texas we create words when we need them. Brethren, that's a more antiquated way of saying brothers and sisters, right? You are brothers and sisters. Paul uses that affectionate dress to, to set up all these heartfelt words concerning the nature of his departure from them. And the nature of their departure from Thessalonica is captured in that expression, having been taken away from you. In other words, Paul and his team, they didn't leave voluntarily. And we studied that in the past already, how they were forced out. And that departure was painful for them. Interesting, that verb translated having been taken away, it's an interesting term. It's not a common word at all, really, in, in, in biblical literature, but it was common in Paul's day. It was the word used to refer to an orphan, a child who had lost his or her parents prematurely. But it's an interesting word because it was the same word used for the other side of that. In other words, it was used of parents who had suddenly lost a child. The child had been taken away. So whether it's the parents that have been taken away or the child that's been taken away, either side, it it conjures up pain. So it's a graphic word in Greek. It it actually is made up of a couple of different concepts. It, It combines the idea of separation with, in the word, is with mental anguish that a 
goes with it. And for the missionaries, it was that. It was anguish. It was anguish felt only after a brief absence. He emphasizes that. He says, just for a short while we've been away. And it's painful. So even after being separated for a very short time, what was his desire? Paul, Silas, and Timothy, their desire, they wanted to be back with the Thessalonians. But he notes the separation they were having to endure. It was just a physical one. It was a geographical one, we could say. He emphasized that by saying, I'm with them in spirit. They were, <clears throat> we understand what that means. We, we still say that. They were, they were with Paul in his thoughts. They were with Paul in his prayers. We've seen those prayers already in 1 Thessalonians. By the way, he told the Colossians the same thing. You can just listen to this, Colossians 2, verse 5, which lets us know something. This was Paul's heart for all the believers anywhere. Colossians 2, 5, he tells the Colossians, For even though I am absent in body, nevertheless I am with you in spirit. He loved them too. Well, back to our text, he, he adds that they were then all the more eager to see the Thessalonians again. You can even translate that, we, we've made every effort. <clears throat> In other words, the verb there includes some action, the idea of, of diligence to pursue something. It includes the idea of being quick about it, some speed. So altogether, it conveys an impression of making a serious effort making plans and doing it with eagerness in their heart. And this eagerness is further emphasized with that phrase that it was with great desire, he says, that they wanted to be with the believers again. So that, that, this is conveying not just longing, but intense longing. Here's something else interesting about the grammar. It's the word he uses for longing or desire. It's a word that we... Mention a lot sometimes in our study of Scripture, in counseling it comes up sometimes as well because we have to deal with this. It's, you don't have to remember any of these Greek terms, of course, but it's epithumia. Epithumia is the word that is many times in the New Testament translated lust. It can also be translated covetousness, which means this is the word commonly used to refer to sinful and controlling passions. It doesn't have to be used about something sinful. It's just that this, our text, is one of the few places in the New Testament where it is used for a strong passion for something good. But at least you get a comparison of the intensity of the passion. What lust would be or covetousness would be towards something sinful that's, that's an inordinate desire, controlling desire, a ruling desire on the good side, that's what their desire for these believers was. It was a ruling desire strong passion, and he presses on it even more and explains it was a strong passion, he says, with to see your face. That's an expression. Seeing one's face means to come into intimate communication with someone. So what he's talking about here is not just passing, passing through the city or saying hello. He was longing for intimate fellowship fellowship with other believers. And like I said, it wasn't just Thessalonica. He was this way concerning believers in other churches. Listen to what he told the Romans. Romans, Romans 1 verse 11, I long to see you. 
Philippians 1, 7 and 8. I have you in my heart, verse 8, how I long for you all. And surprisingly, even to the Galatians, why do I say surprisingly? Because you read Galatians, and that's the letter that's missing his normal uh, cordial introduction, you know, and hello, how you doing, I'm praying for you. No, he says, hi, it's Paul, and I need to confront you about your sin. That's how the letter basically begins. They needed to be confronted. So he had to severely rebuke them. But even them, for them, the, the, the believers in churches in that region called Galatia, Galatians 4.20 says, but I, I wish to be present with you now and to change my tone. So likewise, Paul genuinely loved these Thessalonians. He longed to go back there at the earliest opportunity He wanted to spend time with them so that he could renew that fellowship with them. What an example to us. What an example to elders and ministers. To be consumed in our hearts, to to desire regular fellowship with God's people. Well, if all that was so about them, then why didn't he revisit them? (laughs) What's the problem? Go, Paul. We did try. And he explains why it didn't work in verse 18. He starts off by saying, we wanted to come to you. We wanted means we willed it. It's a term that does uh, capture inclination. It was their personal inclination and purpose, but it, it, it underscores it, this strong feeling even further. We, we were willing it to happen. That's how bad we wanted it. But notice he changes from the pronoun that's plural, we, which is expressing what both he and Paul and, I mean, Paul and Silas and Timothy, what all three of them really felt. Now he interjects this, something very personal. He changes to this emphatic singular, I, Paul, I wanted to come. A sudden outburst of this personal feeling. That's one of the few places in these two letters, First and Second Thessalonians, where the first person singular pronoun is even used. And it is emphasized in the text, I. It's something like this. He says, we, we wanted, we were willing to come to you. We wanted it. Certainly I, Paul, wanted to come, I'm telling you. And he even adds, more than once. And that phrase does hint at this idea that they, they made plans. I mean, they were going on Expedia and checking out hotels and seeing what's available, and what are the flights, what are they costing? I mean, they were doing all that. Well, again, if he longed to fellowship with them, and even if he was making plans to go, what could possibly prevent this kind of passion? What could possibly prevent him from making the trip? The reason was satanic interference, verse 18, and yet Satan hindered us. What a thought. Now, Satan is a from a Hebrew word that means, actually is Hebrew, but uh, the origins of it, but it means accuser, adversary, an appropriate name for Satan. He's opposed to God's purposes and God's ways. He's opposed to God's people. He's opposed to our best interest. It's not the only way he's... He's labeled in Scripture. Even Paul refers to Satan in various ways. In chapter 3, verse 5, he calls him the tempter. 
In 2 Thessalonians 3, he calls him the evil one. In 2 Corinthians 4, you remember that passage where he calls him <clears throat> the God of this world that has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they cannot believe the gospel? The God of this world. Ephesians 2, verse 2, that famous expression. The prince of the power of the air. I mean, Satan is real. There's no question about that in Scripture. God's enemy, the enemy of God's people. Peter talks about him this way, portrays Satan in 1 Peter 5 as a roaring lion who seeks victims to devour. Both James and 1 Peter refer to him as the one that Christians need to resist. Well, God, in his sovereignty, allowed this evil one, the adversary, the accuser, Satan, to oppose the kingdom of God in a variety of ways through history. And Scripture presents a lot of these ways that, that God allows Satan to oppose God's people and God's ways. We know he tempted Christ. Scripture presents him as opposing the gospel. He performs counterfeit miracles. He seeks to deceive believers. He perpetuates lies and murders. He attacks individual churches, and he especially attacks spiritual leaders. Paul knew that from personal experience. He says in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 7, he says that one of Satan's messengers, Satan is not omnipresent, but through his minions, his demons, one of Satan's messengers tormented Paul personally. Exactly how he did that, it's a mystery to us. But here's 2 Corinthians 12, 7. To keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh. Then explains what that is, a messenger of Satan. That phrase is always used of some sort of living being, demonic or otherwise. A messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. And it's no surprise to Paul that, that Satan... Satan's activity would include frustrating plans to visit the Thessalonians, or as he said in our verse, to hinder them. That's a strong term. It's a military term. It's a term you would use in the military to talk about digging a trench or uh, constructing some sort of uh, uh, wall or breaking up a road, perhaps, destroying a bridge, doing anything. Soldiers would do things like that to stop the advance of the enemy soldiers. That's how the word was used in a military context. So in the same way, Satan does this. He wants to thwart the progress of God's kingdom in this world. And Paul knew that one of Satan's tactics was to bar the way so the apostles could not return to the church in Thessalonica to build them up even more. Just how Satan hindered them, Paul doesn't say. But we can conclude this. Satan hates for Christians to love one another. He hates for believers to desire to be with one another. He hates unity within the church family. He hates loyalty to the church family. And he will do whatever he can to hinder it. Of course, as I said, the devil, Satan, is not omnipresent. Only God is. He's on a leash, as it were, against believers. He can do nothing that's outside of God's overruling providence. 
There's no kind of battle going on between God and Satan in this world, and we're still trying to figure out who's going to win in the end. That's already done. We see that in Job, right? Job chapter 1, chapter 2. God is the one that determined the boundaries uh, of what Satan could and could not do to Job. Job 1 Job 2. So remember that. The devil's not omnipresent. God is the one that's ultimately ruling over all things. One more thing we got to remember too. This is not meant to say that every change in plans that have to be made should automatically be attributed to Satan. I mean, there are people who do that. Anything negative, anything bad. No, Paul himself knew that there are doors of opportunity, you know, we like to call them doors of opportunity that were sometimes closed by God's intervention. Examples like this, Romans 1.13, often I have planned to come to you, but have been prevented so far. He didn't mean Satan there, just in God's providence. Romans 15.22, I have often been prevented from coming to you. In fact, if you'll remember in our introduction, it was this preventing, sovereign preventing work of God that resulted in Paul even ending up in Thessalonica in the first place. The famous uh, vision of Macedonia in Acts chapter 16. Here's what Acts 16, 6 and 7 says. You know, they were making their plans to go here and there, and they kept being prevented from doing that, and they ended up going over to Macedonia instead where Thessalonica is. Acts 16, verse 6, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. That wasn't Satan hindering them. Verse 7, they were trying to go into Bithynia, and the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. So we're not to live our lives. It's not the point here. We're not to live our lives looking for, you know, demons behind every bush and looking for satanic involvement in everything that doesn't work out the way we plan. In any case, there is an important contrast, though, here found in our passage. Genuine ministers love regular fellowship with believers. And we'll take steps to bring it to pass. And Satan hates that. Satan hates fellowship amongst believers and will seek to hinder it. So what an example for us. Genuine shepherds are to be known for this. Genuine shepherds should be constantly seeking to cultivate more of this in their hearts. Number one, this desire to regularly be with God's people. There's a second desire that comes out of our passage. Number two, to spiritually impact God's people. A desire to regularly be with God's people, but along with that, not just to be with them, but to spiritually impact God's people. So what surfaces in the next two verses is Paul's excitement over shepherding, over ministry, in particular his joy of being used by the Lord to have spiritual, have spiritual impact on others, in this case it's Thessalonians. He recognized the great privilege he had had to see some of these Thessalonians come to be believers, to be followers or disciples of Christ, and then even to see them continue to grow in what this meant in their daily lives. The apostle had a role in that, and that thrilled his heart. Here's how he expressed it as it related to the Thessalonians, verse 19. For who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation, is it not even you? 
in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? Let me just comment, first of all, on that term coming at the very end. It's, it's that famous word in the New Testament, parousia, important Greek term. It means presence. So the presence of the Lord in that case, parousia. It's the first occurrence of this noun translated coming in, in Christian literature, but it's found frequently in other passages. In the majority of its occurrences in the New Testament, it is referring to the, the coming of the Lord, the return of Christ. It occurs several times in First and Second Thessalonians. We'll get more into that as time goes by. But it's also in, elsewhere in the New Testament, James 5, verse 7. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the parousia of the Lord, the coming of the Lord. Be patient. 1 John 2, verse 28. Now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his parousia, his presence, his coming. Now, the various, there are various facets of his coming in Scripture, and those facets are defined by the context in which parousia appears. Sometimes it refers, for example, to the time after the tribulation period when Christ actually returns to the earth, touches the earth to establish his millennial kingdom. However, we're going to see in 1 Thessalonians it refers more specifically to the rapture that precedes Jesus' return to earth, that time that Scripture says believers will be called to meet with him, to meet him in the air. Even more specifically, in this instance, in our text, Paul has in mind Jesus' examination of his servants after that meeting occurs. In other words, here this refers to the future appearance of believers, every Christian before what is known as the Bema, B-E-M-A. B-E-M-A, the Bema seat of Christ, the judgment seat of Christ. It's not the great white throne judgment, the judgment of unbelievers, for judgment to be cast into eternal punishment and hell. This is the Bema of Christ, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. He's talking only to believers there. We must all appear before the Bema so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. It's very important to understand, though, the purpose of this bema. It's not for condemnation of any kind. This bema, this judgment, this evaluation is for the purpose of rewards. In any case, at this evaluation, there was something particular that Paul was looking forward to. I mean, just think about it. He understood this, just being in the Lord's presence. I mean, that's great in and of itself. But an extra blessing for Paul was to know that these Thessalonian believers would be in the presence of the Lord alongside him. And these believers would be proof of something, proof of the impact of his ministry. That is the point in Paul calling the Thessalonian believers his joy, or look what he says, His crown. Now, that term for crown in this verse means a victory wreath. Uh, It's it's not the term diadem that we hear sometimes for crown. A diadem is a royal crown that a king would wear. This is not that term. It's, It's stephanos, I think is how you said. 
It's a Greek term that referred to a wreath that was made out of laurel or pine, even celery, (laughs) oak leaves. They would use a wreath made out of something like that to give to the athlete who was victorious at the games. That's a very important thing to get that wreath. Or sometimes they would use it to honor a person that was not in the games, to honor a person in some civic function, this wreath. Listen to 1 Corinthians 9, verse 25. Paul makes a point with that about exercising self-control in the Christian life so we live to the glory of God. He says athletes have to do that. And think about what they're doing it for. A wreath made out of celery. Come on. 1 Corinthians 9.25, everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath. I mean, that wreath is not something you take home and put in the cabinet and leave it for a long period of time. Better wear it for a day, and that's about it. Now, Paul did not mean here then in our verse that he was going to receive a literal wreath on his head. That Jesus has all these wreaths already made up, you know, waiting for us. No, he says it's a crown that would be one of exaltation. And that's how the crowns are mentioned in the New Testament, the various crowns. They mean crowns that consist of something. They represent something, not literal crowns. This was a crown that would consist of exaltation. It's a term that can be translated glory. It's even a term that can be translated boasting. It's that you are my crown of boasting and glorying, but not self-centered boasting. That's condemned in Scripture. Paul knew that. He knew that all boasting about self is sinful, that boasting should ultimately be in God himself. He's familiar with verses like Psalm 34, verse 2, my soul will make its boast in the Lord. He was familiar with Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24, Thus says the Lord, let not a wise man boast in his wisdom, and let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this, that he understand and knows me, that I am the Lord. Glory in that, exalt in that. And Paul did live that way as a pattern, boasting and glorying in the Lord. Philippians 3, verse 3, we glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Galatians 6, 14, may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus. So back to our text, when it says in our passage that the Thessalonians were his crown of glory, his crown of boasting and rejoicing, He was ultimately rejoicing in what the Lord had accomplished through him. Listen to how he says it more particularly in Romans 15, 17, and 18. In Christ Jesus, I have found reason for boasting in things pertaining to God. For I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. But my point this morning is that was important to Paul. That was a desire of his heart, that the Lord would accomplish spiritual things, spiritual impact through him and the lives of other people. And the Lord did that in Thessalonica. He accomplished through Paul spiritual impact, the conversion of many unbelievers to be disciples of Christ. And as well, the Lord accomplished through Paul the ongoing growth of those believers to greater spiritual maturity. Put it shorter, the Lord used Paul to both make disciples and then to further disciple those disciples. 
So crown in our verse means one that consists of boasting, glorying, or rejoicing in the presence of all these Thessalonian believers, he says, that he spiritually impacted. They would be with him in heaven forever, and they would be a testimony to the effectiveness of his ministry. In other words, they would be like the reward for him. The reward for his faithful gospel ministry. He wrote about that in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 14. If any man's work which he has built remains, he'll receive a reward. Again, it wasn't just Thessalonica that he thought this way. Here's what he said to the Philippians, Philippians 4, verse 1. My beloved brethren, whom I long to see, here it is again, my joy and crown. And then in verse 20, the apostle drives the point home one more time. With a couple of changes, though. Verse 20, for you are our glory and joy. Here he changes the the tense of it. He's he's not saying he's looking forward to that time where they'd all be there. And and here's my reward. Lord, you used me to have spiritual impact on, on people. What greater joy is that? Now, he says, in the present tense, they are that right now to him, my glory and joy. And that pronoun you is is emphasized in the language there. He leaves no doubt how he felt about them, even at that time. But one more important change here is the term glory. It's not the same term exaltation back in verse 19, the crown of exaltation or the crown of glory. It's a different term. That one could be translated boasting or glorying. This glory is doxa. It's fame, renown that a person receives when honored by others. But the point ends up being the same, that those believers, the Thessalonians, as far as the missionaries were concerned, the only fame we care about, these believers right here. The only source of honor that we care about is to know that we've been used by the Lord in the lives of other people. Thus, they looked forward to the additional joy, the additional reward of being in eternity with them because they were proof of the effectiveness of faithful gospel ministry. What a thought this is. This applies to everybody, by the way. That a part of heaven's delight for the redeemed, a part of it will be their joy over the presence of others that they've impacted spiritually? Now, we may not ever know here in this world, in this earth, how much that happens. We may not even know whom we have impacted at times. But we're to live with this mindset. We're to live with this heart's desire. This is why we're here to further kingdom purposes, to bring glory to Christ, which includes encouraging and exhorting others in their walk with Christ. And whatever level of that the Lord uses us for will be our reward by Him. It's for everybody, but like I said earlier, pastors, elders, we especially need to be seeking to keep this in mind that we serve in this role for a purpose. We're we're elders in a church, we're leaders in ministry for a purpose. It's to help people grow spiritually. 
That's what Paul consistently prayed for people, that that's how they would grow. Listen to what he tells the Colossians in Colossians 1.10. He says, I pray that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. That's what he prayed for them because that's what he was about in the lives of people. And he says later in that same chapter, Colossians 1, verses 28 and 29, that that's what he was striving to accomplish. He says, we proclaim Christ, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every person complete in Christ. For this purpose, I labor, striving according to his power, though, which mightily works within me. My point this morning is these are great desires in a shepherd's heart to regularly fellowship, be with God's people. And second, to spiritually impact God's people. So Paul is here just encouraging these Thessalonians with the truth that he loved them. And that was evidence in his longing to be with them. And it was such a strong desire that it would take supernatural demonic opposition to keep him away. He also even explained to them his view of heaven, that he longed for it for many reasons, but one was they would be there. They would be central even to his eternal joy. What a wonderful example for all in church leadership. You see, a man may be gifted, a man may be knowledgeable, trained, But at the end of the day, if he doesn't love his people, if he does not prioritize his life around ministry to them and sacrificially serve them, then he doesn't really end up being an asset to the church. So let me capture another way what we're saying. In essence, we're really seeing here some important biblical qualifications for elders. Now, we know there are two passages that have the neon lights shining on them that saying qualifications of elders look here, right? 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1. Those passages, no doubt, give us the clearest and most concentrated list of the character traits a man who's an elder should meet, at least at some recognizable level. 1 Peter 5 is helpful as well, by the way, when it comes to looking at character for elders and even ministry practice, but this passage adds something important. A church elder should love being with the people of the church. A pastor cannot say something like this, and I have heard someone say it, not here. You know, I love the ministry. I'm just really not a people person. Now, try to reason through that, because I want to ask the person, what do you minister to then? Like cows and horses and dogs or what? I mean, at our church, we have people. It's not possible to be like that, because loving ministry means loving people. I'm not saying it's all natural for us. We have to grow in this, and we should be seeking to grow continually in this. And no doubt a church elder should love being used by God to minister to and to shepherd the people of the church. 
The calling to ministry is it's not a call to being an entertainer. It's not a call to being a, a business manager. It's not a, a call to being uh, just a, a really good planner or a, a vision caster. At the end of the day, ministry is about people. It's about loving and discipling people. So take all this, add it to the qualifications listed in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, and we really do have then what is needed for knowing if a man could serve as an elder. Are these things his heartbeat? And he needs to evidence growth in the character elements for sure in those other passages, but he needs to be recognized as someone who evidences that he loves fellowship with the people. And he loves helping people spiritually. These are the qualifications of an elder that are biblically supported, you see, and those are the only qualifications we need, by the way. We don't need extra rules and qualifications not found in Scripture. On this topic, we believe the Bible is sufficient. We don't need to add on man-made standards of some sort. Scripture has given us what we need to know if a man is qualified. But our desire as your elders, I know, is that we would continually grow in these areas because this is what the church needs. Pastors and elders and leaders who care deeply for you. And our example then should be a model for all of you. Churches need that as well. Churches need members who care deeply for one another. It's that kind of love then that fosters the church being experienced as a family. Again, we are brothers and sisters of one another with deep affection and enduring loyalty to one another. Let's pray that God would increase that. Our Father, we are so example for, so grateful for this example from the Apostle Paul, knowing he was just a, a man, a man who struggled against the flesh like any man would, a man who was resting in what Christ accomplished for him on, through his death and life and death and not resting in his own merit, just like us in that way, but yet a man that you chose, a man that you used greatly then to teach us more about who you are and what you desire of us. Father, I pray that this would not just be another Bible study as much as we enjoy Bible study, but it would be something that would cause us to think more deeply about what you expect from us, first of all, as leaders of this church, that we are to be people persons. We are to love shepherding, and we are to be thinking spiritually as we interact with others, not that we can't have fun and just live life together, but at some point our great desire has to be that we would present every person complete in Christ. So, Lord, burn these desires even deeper in our hearts as your under-shepherds here. Lord, I might, I pray also that you would continue to help us and strengthen us each day to live this out on our own. We can't do it. And Lord, we are mindful that 
of our weakness in that regard, but we are mindful of your strength. And as we work out our salvation, that it is you who works in us to will it and to do it. So we pray for that. We confess that we fall short in many ways. Thank you again for your great forgiveness and that even our failures in this regard, our self-centeredness, moments of self-centeredness and laziness is still covered by Christ on the cross. Thank you for that. Lord, I do continue to pray for those in our church family who have who are suffering and struggling in some way. We continue to pray for the Salter family and the loss of Shirley's mother and Ron Casterlow and the loss of his mother and those who have family members and even members in our church fighting great physical challenges that you would comfort and encourage them. We pray for your continual comfort for the Bruce family as they honor you with their testimony of their trust in you over the loss of their son and brother. Lord, we just commit ourselves, all of us, everything we're facing into your hands, thanking you that you're the great shepherd who loves us. What a joy it is to say the Lord is my shepherd. In our Savior's name, amen.